So it was uh, September 10th, 2021. Uh, it was a Friday. I don't know if that date means anything to you, but it means a lot to me because of what happened in that moment. That Friday morning, like I usually do, I opened up my Bible and I picked up this journal right here uh, that I do my devotions in, that I write prayers down. And that morning, uh, I was meditating on Psalm 13 and a couple of verses, just in case you're unfamiliar with that passage. It reads, How long, Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The words, how long, Lord, leaped off the page and resonated at a deep level that morning. I was frustrated with where I was at in that moment uh, because, see, uh, it was September 10th, 2021. Three years prior to that, September 2018, we moved our whole family from BC to Ontario to pursue what we thought God was calling us to do, and that was plant a church in Toronto. But three years into the journey, that vision that once burned red hot was now lukewarm at best and was slowly fading away from my mind quickly. I was discontent in the church role that I was currently in and I was asking God questions that morning. I wrote in this journal, how long before I'm in a role that is a perfect fit for who you created me to be? How long till I plant a church? No answers came to me in that moment. But in the confusion, in the silence, on the verge of tears, because I saw the toll that it took on my wife and my kids to move them across the country to a place that they didn't know, to a people that they didn't know, to pursue what we thought God was calling us to do. So the thought, the question kept going through my head, God, did I hear you wrong? It seemed in the moment that all the doors opened up quite quickly and everything fell into place. But in this moment, I was asking myself, God, did I hear you wrong? I knew that wasn't the whisper of Jesus, but a thought from the enemy. So I quickly moved that aside. And as I meditated on the scripture in silence, I waited to see what God was going to say. I waited to see what in the scripture would write itself on my heart that day, would encourage me, would fill me with courage in that moment. So in silence, minutes later, I heard a whisper, not an audible voice, but just a thought that I knew was my not, not my own thought. And it was just these two words, two years, two years. So I wrote it down immediately in my journal. With that, some other encouragements in that moment from this scripture. And I just sat on it. I quickly actually forgot about it. Two months later, we moved back to BC. But as we were preparing for this moment right here, this summer, God brought this journal entry to mind. So I quickly went, ran, and I grabbed this journal, and I looked to the bottom. I remember I wrote down two years, and I did the math. And if you are doing the math with me in your head, you would realize that 2023, September 10th, is today. And I knew in that moment that God was telling me something, that God was saying to me that he has already gone before me, that he's already prepared something for us to do here in advance. So I quickly went, and I told Dan, and I encouraged him, and I knew in this moment that Paul's words in Ephesians 2.20 were coming to life. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we step into this visioning moment in the history of Port Kells Church, friends, visitors, PKC, I want us to understand this. God has been at work here preparing this community for this new season before Dan and I were ever on your radar, before Dan and I ever stepped into this building. I believe with a deep conviction in my heart this morning that we are right where God wants us when it comes to me and Dan and our leadership and pastoral leadership. And my prayer for you as we get going, as we start this vision series, is that you will come maybe to the same conviction that God is drawing you here to this community as it forms, as it takes place. And I believe God is doing work. He is forming us to become something together. And here's where our vision and mission statement comes in. You ready? This is what we hope to become here at PKC over the next years. We hope that here at PKC, that we become a community of apprentices of Jesus, joining God in his renewal of all things. Our mission is to be a community of apprentices of Jesus joining God in his renewal of all things. Again, if you don't know if, uh, what any of those words means, that, that's okay. The next seven weeks as vision series is for us to drill this into you, to go into words and talk about what it means to apprentice Jesus or what it means to be a community that is joining God in his renewal of all things. But this morning, I want to lay a foundation that this vision is going to be built on, okay? This, this is a core to understanding how we are going to do this. And first of all, you need to understand this. Church isn't an event, it's a community. Church isn't an event, it's a community. It's not something you attend, but rather something that you are. The consumer ethic of a passive amusement has deeply infiltrated the modern church. Sally Morgenthaler writes this, we're not producing worshipers in this country. She's talking about the U.S., but I think you can apply this to all of North America. She says, rather, we are producing a generation of spectators, religious onlookers, lacking in many cases any memory of a true encounter with God, deprived of both the tangible sense of God's presence and the supernatural relationships their inmost spirits crave. Biblically speaking, the church is not an event, it's a community. The church is an assembly of women, men, and children redeemed by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and living in communion with him and each other in a way that reveals to the world the invading reality of God's kingdom. That kind of community requires all of us to be full participants, not merely spectators. From the get-go, as we lay this vision out, I want us to understand this, because I've been in vision talks before. I've sat in your seat, you know, been a leader on staff somewhere where a guy's giving this vision and it quickly dawns on me or my mind swiftly, quickly slips into this mindset of like, okay, that's great. These pastors, they have the strategy, they know what to do, they're going to do it. They're going to get this work done. And maybe I'll pray for them, maybe I'll give them some money, but really, I don't really need to do much. But I want you to understand here, in this moment, to accomplish this mission, to be a community of apprentices of Jesus, joining God in his renewal of all things, it's going to take all of us contributing. 
It's going to take all of us participating. It's going to take all of us sacrificing. It's going to take all of us using our spiritual gifts. And here's what is at the core of this happening. In order for this to take place, besides the power of God, we need to understand this. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, Jesus says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. There's actually nothing new about the vision statement or the mission statement that I just recited to you. Me and Dan know that. There's actually many churches that we know that have similar mission statements. We're actually convinced, and we'll show you in this series from the Bible, that in some ways these words encapsulate what Jesus' vision for this first community of followers is. But these verses that I just read are the make and break point for this vision becoming a reality amongst any local church. Let me give you some context and explain why I say that. John, the writer of this gospel, starts in this chapter, chapter 13, recording the last words of Jesus to his followers, his disciples, his apprentices, as I use the word, people that are learning to live their lives the way that Jesus lived his life when he walked on this earth. These apprentices, these disciples are sitting around him in this room. And chapters 13 to 17 are Jesus's final words to them before his arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Scholars call this Jesus' farewell discourse. And if you will, it has all the elements of a normal Jewish farewell. First, he's surrounded by his most intimate friends and family. Secondly, he encourages them and comforts them. In John 14, he gives them a blessing. He promises the empowerment of the Holy Spirit will come upon them. And he literally leaves, at the end of this book, the fourth gospel that we are reading. Everything that John says at the end of this book, in the last chapter that he recorded, that he wrote down for us to read. But this is what I find fascinating. Imagine being in that room, right? These, this is Jesus' last words to his crew. I'd be leaning in, expectant, ready for him to drop some profound truth bomb that would just blow up all my paradigms, right? Reveal to me how everything that he just did on this earth comes together. He just washed the disciples' feet he just uh, administered the Lord's Supper. Jews just betrayed him and walked out the door. And these are the words that come out of his mouth. Love one another. Love one another. I don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking because it's not in the text. But I'm sure their minds weren't blown in this moment. Here's the question. What's new about this command, right? What's new about what he just said in this, to this Jewish audience, they would have known the Old Testament. They would have known passages like Leviticus 19.18, uh, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love was a central part of the Old Testament. And they read the Torah out loud and they would have heard it. The concept of loving your neighbor is not new to them. So what's so revolutionary about this idea, right? 
In the same way, when we hear the word love in our cultural moment, there's a bunch of cultural baggage that that word carries, right? When you hear love, I don't know what comes to mind, but I read that modern Western people, when they hear love, it conjures up ideas of romantic infatuation, gooey feelings, sweet sentimentality. We think of love as a soft, gentle emotion. You know, maybe like me, when you think of love, a rom-com comes to your mind, right? Like The Notebook or Crazy Stupid Love, or there's a movie that me and my wife just watched called What Does Love Got to Do With It? which is all about arranged marriages in Pakistani and Indian culture. But what these movies do for us, they all always try to give us a picture of what love should look like. And a lot of times the message is love is a feeling. But what makes this a profound line that Jesus just delivers in this moment, a, through, a truth that blows up paradigms, is that his actions that follow this commands were mind-blowing. He just washed the disciples' feet. And in a couple chapters, he's about to go to the cross. He's giving them a picture of what makes this command new. See, this word new in the Greek doesn't mean chronologically new, but it means a freshness, a new kind. Jesus is raising the bar. It's no longer love others the way you want to be loved. It's now love others the way that I loved you. Love again is like this, 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is our example. This is the model this is the new definition. Love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a commitment. Love is an action. This is the radical call of love that Jesus is calling his disciples to. Love, to love with unconditional love, like he has loved us. A love that puts the, our needs on the back burner and puts others' needs first. And as we start in this vision series, this is what we need to grasp. Because remember, we're becoming a community of apprentices of Jesus, joining God as a written renewal of all things. Without love, you can't have community. It doesn't work. It falls apart. And without community, no matter what you think, no matter how you've been formed by this individualistic society, you can't follow Jesus by yourself. As soon as you take away love, this vision disintegrates. This statement unravels. Love is a thread that holds this all together. See, this love command by most Christians gets interpreted to love the world out there. But remember the context. Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples that are left in the room. He's not talking to people out there. He's talking to the people in the room to love one another. He's talking about how we love one another within the church. And in 2023, I think this is the, one of the most important things that we need to get as Christians. Why? Because let's be very honest, Christians are horrible at loving one another, right? We're like the worst. Like just go on social media and my point is proven. You go, go on YouTube and you'll find video after video of one Christian calling out another Christian because they don't like their ministry strategy or they take a quote out of context and they say that they're a false teacher or something. 
And sure, there's some truth to some of those videos, but again and again, Christians bashing Christians bashing Christians. And what is going on, right? This is what typically happens. As Christians, our zeal for truth quickly supersedes and overshadows Jesus' command to love one another. Hear me correctly, right? Doctrine is important. Me and Dan are all about that. There's essentials that we need to believe that are non-negotiable. One of those things being the gospel. But how quickly Christians break community over non-essential issues. Issues sometimes that they don't have the right information or they have some sort of interpretation of the biblical text and they're not sure how to apply it quickly. But they're not even in a relationship with some of these people sometimes and they make a judgment call. Because of their zeal for truth, they make a judgment call. And when we act like this, listen, we're acting like, not like followers of Jesus, we're actually acting like the Pharisees, another character in these Gospels. I found this oral article by a pastor in California that encapsulates this perfectly. He said, The Pharisees in Jesus' time came down on the right side of all the issues in the cultural wars of that day. He writes, But it's interesting. The people who held the quote-unquote right values were the ones that were least responsive to Jesus' message and most likely to receive his reprimand. The ironic result of their quote-unquote rightness and belief and practice was that they became unable to love. They did not want the sick healed on the Sabbath. They did not want the, an adulterous woman to be forgiven. They did not want sinners to share a fellowship with the righteous. They came to see the people that they were called to love as the enemy. And they're not the only ones. History repeats itself. The Inquisition, the Crusades, slavery, all these were entered into by people who believed in ethical absolutism and even defended their actions with the Bible. Love needs to be central even in our disagreements. Be it political or whatever cultural war or issue of the day, inside or outside the church. Listen, I've heard Christians break community because they didn't like the music. Something as simple as that. See, one practice, or two practices, I guess you could say. One practice is I intentionally befriend people, be it Christians or not, that have different views than me. And in those relationships, you know what it's taught me? I don't always have to be right in order to love them. I don't have to persuade them. Even here, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this with Dan is because in this relationship, me and Dan, we don't always agree, but I'm still called to love and lead with him. And those non-essential things about what the color of the wall should be in the room, right? I'm not going to break community with Dan because of those things. Because I'm called to love him. I've heard it said like this, a watching world will be persuaded, not when our values are promoted in society, but when they are incarnated. Jesus says it like this, by this, by this, what is this? Our love. All people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. 
Isn't that what our world needs right now in this moment? Nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared amongst its members. This is our hope. This is our prayer for our mission here at PKC. This is how we're going to impact the community in Surrey and Langley and our neighbors around us. This is how we join God in his renewal of all things. My prayer is that as we live into this at PKC, that non-believers, nuns, people that don't have any religious orientation, people that are from a different religion would walk into this place and they wouldn't be wowed by the production of the services or the excellence of the music or the charismatic person in the pulpit, but they would walk into this place and be blown away by the way that we love each other in this community. Why? Because when we love each other in this way, it's how we make an invisible God visible to them. John says it like this in 1 John 4, 12, the NLT version. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. In other words, when we love like this, it not only authenticates our profession of faith, but it makes visible the invisible God of love. When this commandment is followed, the potential is that people that are far from God can walk into this place and not encounter God by a sermon, which happens, or not encounter God by the music, which happens, but they will encounter God, not by the things that are happening on the stage, but listen, by the way that I love Eric. By the way that Dan loves Maxine. By the way that we love one another has the potential for someone to come and encounter God for themselves. But I know what some of you are thinking at this point. Because I thought it as I was writing this sermon. How can I possibly love a stranger like that, right? You know, I was thinking about this like sometimes it's hard to love my own wife this way, to put her preferences before mine. How am I supposed to love someone like Jesus loved me in this way before I even get to know them? If you're thinking there's no way that's going to happen, you are right. <laughs> On our own, that's not going to happen. In our own strength, we can't drum up this type of love. There's not, nothing internally that we have inside us on our own that can love a person like this. The psychologist John Sanford says the problem with this verse or the difficulty from a psychological point of view with this command is that love cannot be willed. The person who tries to love by an act of will is likely to wind up with a persona that looks like he or she is loving, but with a shadow side hidden in the unconscious that negates it. Love must come from the heart if it's to be genuine. It, not, it cannot be feigned, not even with the best of intentions. You can't will this type of love into existence because simply uh, you can't produce what you don't possess. You can't produce what you don't possess, right? An apple tree can't produce oranges, right? A cherry tree can't produce grapes. Of course not, why? Because it can only produce what it possesses. 
In the same way, unless you have experienced the love of God yourself, unless you possess the love of God in your being, you won't be able to reproduce that love of God towards others. John says it like this in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. See, this is why Jesus washed the disciples' feet first before he gave this command so that they would experience this type of love that he was about to command them to show one another. Not only that, he put this love to the world on full display that when he came from heaven, he resolved not to give into temptation or to sin in any way. He resolved not to put what he wanted ahead of what the Father willed. He was obedient even when it led him to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but it didn't end there. On the third day, he came back to life conquering death and defeating the power that sin has on our lives. And when we believe this good news, the gospel, we not only learn what it means to be human, but we learn how to love like God loved us. It's the divine love that is birthed in us that when we become a new creation, we can give our lives to Jesus. This love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And now it can flow out of our hearts towards others in this community. Our love for one another is the fruit, not the root. The root is the seed of the gospel planted in us that grows inside of us, that transforms us from the inside out. See, it's this experience of his love, his grace, and his mercy that in moments in this community allows us, when we need to be patient, to, to be patient because we remember how patient God was with us when we were, our lives were a mess, when we're stumbling around in our sin, when we're doing all the wrong things. It allows us to be slow to anger with one another when we remember how slow to anger God was with us. How many chances he gave us, how patient he was with us when it came to us journeying with him, following him. It allows us to forgive that person quickly that sinned against us in community because of the love and forgiveness that God showed us that we've experienced when we sinned for the umpteenth time against him. But upon repenting, he forgave us. And not only that, he washed our record clean. I know this type of love I believe this type of love expressed in community has the power to change the world. And to stoke our imaginations, I end with this story exhibiting of the power of this unrelenting, ferocious love that God pursues us with that we can experience here in community when we love one another. The Clapham sect is a well-known community built around a love for one another. It was a network of friends and families in England with William Wilberforce as its center of gravity who were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, by their love for each other. The group's primary aims were the liberation of slaves, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of the penal system. They worked fervently for several decades, but throughout British, sorry, 
They worked fervently for several decades, both throughout British society and in Parliament, where William Wilberforce was a member. And finally, they saw the fruits of their labors with the passage of the Slave Trade Act in 1807 and the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. Because of the shared commitment to one another and these goals, they were also credited with founding many societies, the Foreign Bible Society, the Church Missionary Society, the Sunday School Society, the Clapham sect are renowned for having played a substantial role in developing what became Victorian morals through their writings, their influence in Parliament, and the example that they set. In the words of the historian Stephen Michael Tompkins, the ethos of the Clapham sect became the spirit of the age. PKC, let us pray. Let us imagine what God can do through us if we committed to love like this in this community this year. Let's be open to what he can do through us to impact the people around us. But that impact starts in here. This impact starts every Sunday as we love one another, as we choose to love one another, as we choose to offer the same love that we experienced in the gospel for his glory.